If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, we're going to keep going in Mark. I have my sermons kind of roughly mapped out for like a year and a half in advance. But as I keep, as we're only three sermons into Mark, and I keep having to like readjust as I go forward because my chunks were too big. Um, we're going to cover Mark chapter 1 this morning, verses 14 through 20. We just prayed, every Sunday we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we asking for when we pray that? What is the kingdom of God? That's the question at the heart of our text this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, which reads this way. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So as we look at the beginning of verse 14, we have a time stamp. It says, after John was arrested. And sometimes... Sometimes I laugh as I read commentaries. It's like, these guys are really smart that are writing these things. But some of these guys see this, and they argue then that the ministries of John and Jesus didn't overlap. And I chuckle, and I think, well, you guys, didn't you read John? Uh, (laughs) It's clear from the Gospel of John that the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist do overlap. John chapter 3 says that there are disciples of John who are going to John and saying, hey, Jesus is gathering more disciples than us. What are we supposed to do? And John says to his disciples, well, this was the point, guys. I must become less. He must become greater. So their ministries overlap, but then John is arrested. He makes Herod mad because he keeps preaching about righteousness, and he goes to Herod himself and says, actually, you shouldn't have your brother's wife. That's really not okay. And Herod has John thrown in prison. And then at the beginning of John chapter 4, It says that Jesus becomes aware, that the Pharisees are aware, that Jesus is gathering more disciples than John. And the implication is that the Pharisees aren't happy about this. And instead of waiting for things to boil over in Judea, in the the southern region of the country, Jesus heads north. He heads to Galilee. And so that's that's the time frame that we're looking at here is after after John chapter four, where Jesus has passed through Samaria. You remember the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. This is he's heading up into Galilee and verse 14 tells us that he comes into Galilee proclaiming, which is to say he is preaching. And what is he preaching? It says he's preaching the gospel of God. That word gospel, many of you know, simply means good news. It's good because the content is joyful, it's happy, it's, it's great news. And it's news in the sense that it's an announcement. It's not a suggestion. It's not the beginning of a conversation. It's not even simply an offer. It's news about what God has done and what he is doing. 
Jesus is announcing the good news of God. So what is the content of that good news? Verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So there's three aspects to this gospel proclamation in verse 15. The first is the announcement of a time. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says. The second is the announcement of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. It means the same thing. And the third is a call for a response. So first, the time. The, the idea of time is really what we've been building on the last couple of weeks. As we are introduced to the ministry of John in the wilderness in verses 1 through 8, and then the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River and his being driven into the wilderness for temptation. Jesus did not come into the world out of the blue. It was the culmination of hundreds and thousands of years of expectation and waiting and longing. The promise of a Messiah, a Redeemer, a conquering King, these go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent says that there would be one who was the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of the snake. Genesis 12, that that promise gets directed directly towards Abraham's family. In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And the, the expectation that builds all the way through the Old Testament is that there was a dragon slayer, a serpent slayer, who was coming, who would come from Abraham's people. And through him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. But as we talked about last week, the wilderness years in many ways set the tone for the people of Israel, their history. They had amazing experiences of God, followed by times of stunning rebellion and lawlessness, which would then be followed by periods of God's discipline for them, and then they would repent and God would bring them salvation, and then you hit the repeat cycle, and it goes over again and again. And after the last of these, when the people are carried off into Babylon in 587 BC, and then after 70 years in captivity, begin to return to the land, God gives them another short period of good leadership, men like Ezra and Nehemiah, and a few more prophets. But then when the book of Malachi closes around 400 BC, things go silence, silent. There, there's nothing, no more prophetic voice, no more word from the Lord. And, and the people surely started to wonder, has, has God forgotten us? Has he forgotten his people? But then that's where we get the beginning of this book. The wilderness prophet, John the Baptist, bursts on the scene, coming like Elijah in the wilderness, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John is making straight in the desert a highway, a path for the coming great Davidic king. John is announcing that John is announcing that the time is nearly here. And then Jesus picks that up in verse 15 and says, the time is here. The time is fulfilled. What you have been waiting for is now upon you. The Apostle Paul says, we read it last week in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons in the fullness of time. So that's who Jesus is. He's the one who has come at the proper time. God's son 
come into the world, the anointed one, the Messiah. But, but what does that time mean? Like, why? what is the fullness of time? It's the fullness of time for what? Jesus says that it's time for the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Some translations say the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is the kingdom of God? Now, that's a question that has literal, had had literal gallons of ink <laughs> spilled trying to answer that question. Scholars of every stripe from ultra-liberal to ultra-conservative and everywhere in between, everybody has an opinion about what is the kingdom of God. Is it a spiritual reality? Is it an earthly reality? Is it both? Is it present? Is it future? Is it both? But I think there's a pretty simple definition we can get. Uh, in, his, in his book, The Greatness of the Kingdom, the, the early 20th century writer Alva McLean offers this definition. I think it's helpful. A general survey of the biblical material indicates that the concept of kingdom envisages a total situation containing at least three essential elements. Number First, a ruler with adequate authority and power. Second, a realm of subjects to be ruled. And third, the actual exercise of the function of rulership. So those three things, a ruler, a realm, and the ruler reigning over that realm. Now in that sense, there's a broad case that we can make that God is the ruler and everywhere is his kingdom. Everywhere in all of history, all of creation is God's kingdom. Does God have power over all creation, authority? Well, he made it all. Hebrews 1.3 says he sustains it by the word of his power. God has power over creation, and he has the right and the authority as the creator to rule over it. And again, what's the extent? What's the realm of that reign? Well, everything. Not just the visible things that we see, but uh, the kids and I were just reading in Colossians chapter 1 the other day, and verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And likely there in Colossians 1, when Paul speaks of thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, he's not talking about the things that we see like Putin or Biden or, you know, visible heads of state. He's talking about spiritual authorities, the, the powers that be that we can't see. Everything, even the demonic powers, are underneath the rule of God. And God exercises his rule. Matthew 10, 29 says that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Even those who are not Christians in Scripture, it makes clear, are governed by God. Uh, In the book of Exodus, and then Paul quotes this in Romans 9, it, it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And the implication is that I will also harden whom I will harden. God, in the book of Genesis, one of the times that Abraham takes, <laughs> goes somewhere with Sarah and says, hey, uh, can we just pretend like we're just brother and sister so I don't get killed? He goes to Abimelech, this not godly king, someone who's apparently not worshiping Yahweh. And yet... God comes to Abimelech and says, hey, don't take this man's wife because he's his, she's his wife. And, and then God says, I kept you from sinning with her. God, even though this man was not a believer in Yahweh, he wasn't someone who was following God, God prevents him 
from sinning. So God exercises his rule over the, the smallest bird in creation to wicked people and then obviously over his own people. Nothing happens outside or apart from the will of God. So the scope of God's reign is everything and everywhere. But if that's what Jesus meant by kingdom in Mark 1, 14 and 15, then he's not saying anything, right? God's always present rule is at hand, but it's always been here. Uh, That doesn't make sense as a gospel announcement. There's another way that kingdom is used in the scriptures with that kind of that same definition of of a ruler, a realm, and his actual reign. But it's more it's more technical, it's more specific. While we can obviously speak of God being king over everyone and everything all the time, that's obviously true. The more specific way that gets used is in places like Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. God says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be for me. So like within that earth, so everything is mine, but within that, you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt in order to represent him. Their nation was to be the place where his kingdom, his rule, and his authority was made clear, was made visible in the world. They were were to make visible the rule and reign of God in this visible world. Israel was to be distinct from the nations. In in this way, they were to be a place where the the tabernacle and then the temple stood at the center of the nation as the place of worship where Yahweh had sacrifices offered to him and he poured out blessing upon his people where worship took center stage. A place where God's laws were to be read and studied by the king according to Deuteronomy 17. And then the king along with all the people were then to obey the law of the Lord. They were to be a people characterized by Psalm 1, meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. They didn't do that, did they? Again and again, Israel failed in that role. She didn't live up to her calling to be a light to the nations. But Jesus comes and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You, Israel, he says, were supposed to be the visible kingdom. And you didn't do it, but now it's here. It is here. What does Jesus mean by here? I think first of all, he means that the king of the kingdom has come. God, who is always present everywhere, not he's not restricted by physical space like we are, right? He's omnipresent. He's outside of the constraints of what he has made. Yet, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the word, the son, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He, he became, he added to his eternal divinity, humanity, and lived a real life in a particular place, in a particular time in history. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, grew up in Nazareth, and now in Mark chapter 1, he's walking around in Galilee. He came to a specific place, a specific time in history, speaking to people. The almighty God of the universe was walking around with Galilean dirt beneath his toenails. And his message is, the king 
is here. He's here. The kingdom has come because the king is here. And that's good news because it means the visible rule and reign of God is breaking into the world. The the people of Israel expected that he would come and set up an earthly kingdom, an earthly throne there in Jerusalem, kick out the Herods and kick out all of the Romans, not just their puppet kings, the Herods, but all of their influence. And then they expected that that kingdom centered in Jerusalem would take over the world. But that's not what Jesus did, at least not in the way that they expected. Remember what we talked about last week, that that the fundamental problem the people of Israel had in Exodus was not Pharaoh's bondage of them. It wasn't that they were slaves in Egypt. And in the first century, the fundamental problem that the people of Israel had was not that that the Romans had them under their thumb. Those are real problems, like... Oppression and slavery are real problems. Like, those aren't jokes. But they are not the deepest problem. The deepest problem is is that the the people of Israel in Exodus were in bondage to their sin. The people of Israel in first century Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Galilee, like, they, they were under the oppression of sin. It's the same problem that we have today. We are in sin. As Mark's gospel unfolds, what we're going to see is that Jesus is the one who came to die for sins. He's the one who paid the price for us so that we could be reconciled with God, freed from that slavery, freed, released from that oppression. But the other thing that we see, beginning here in Mark 1 and carrying all the way through this gospel and all the way through the New Testament letters and all the way through the book of Revelation, is that what it means to have Jesus for your Savior is not just that he releases you from the eternal consequences of that sin. It's not just that he gets you out of hell. To believe in Jesus is also to believe in him as the king, as the Lord, the one who deserves my worship and my service. Jesus is the one who calls you to follow him, to believe in him. To believe the gospel is to embrace Jesus not only as your savior in the sense of a get out of hell free card. It's to embrace him as your Lord, the ruler of your whole life. Verse 16 says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. We see this, the response is what we're going to see here. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, we read that and sometimes we think, wow, first time they met this guy, they follow him. They just take off, they leave everything and they follow him. That's probably not the case, actually. Again, if you look at John chapter one, these guys have probably interacted with Jesus before. And then They certainly have interacted with Jesus before. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, this section of John chapter 1 is still focused on the ministry of John the Baptist. And it says the next day, John, as in John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. These things almost again, almost certainly took place before what we're reading in Mark chapter 1. So Peter and Andrew, it seems, are fairly religious men. There's at least some sense in which they understand that there's something wrong with them. That's what would have drawn them to John's ministry. Andrew, at least, is described as a disciple of John. And so he would have been baptized by, by John. And when he sees Jesus there and John says, there is the Lamb of God, Andrew's like, okay, I'm going to go follow him now. And he, he follows and then he goes and gets his brother. And together they spend time with Jesus. But apparently after that time where they hang out with Jesus, they go back to work. Like they've got to eat. They're fishermen. So they go back to their boats and they start casting their nets and earning their living. So as Jesus comes into Galilee, he walks by the sea, and there they are, <clears throat> out there casting their nets. Jesus probably walking by fairly early in the morning. They're still out in the boat, maybe working their way back towards shore. And he calls out to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus calls them to lay aside their nets and to become his disciples. And for them, that meant literally laying aside their livelihood to follow him. Part of what it means to repent and believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is to believe that he is the king and that you have to be willing to follow him wherever he takes you. This is why our church mission statement is Remsen Bible Fellowship exists to help people become followers of Jesus to grow in likeness to him for their joy and for God's glory. When sometimes we get like uncomfortable, people get uncomfortable with the language of lordship or Jesus' command to follow him. Like, well, but isn't it just about belief? Yes, it is. All you have to do to be saved is to believe in Jesus. But belief in the New Testament is never just something in your head. Belief in the New Testament, the way it defines it, is you're committing everything to him, to believe everything that he says. Not just, I've got this category in my head where if you ask me on a pop quiz what I think about Jesus, I check the boxes right. No, it means you're committing your life to him. You're committing to following him. Look again at what Jesus says. He tells them to follow him. And if they follow Jesus, he says, I will make you become fishers of men. He will make them fishers of men. That's not just like a cute play on words. He's saying that you're going to join me in what I'm here to do. We exist to follow Jesus, and if we're following in his footsteps and the footsteps of Andrew and Peter, then we exist to be fishers of men as well. Those who follow Jesus should be casting their nets, trying to pull others towards him. And it says immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Again, they've spent time with Jesus before. This isn't just out of the blue. Some random guy says, oh, yeah, follow me. And they're like, blind faith, take off after him. They knew him. They've spent time around him. They've heard him speak. They have reason to believe that this is the Christ, the Son of God. And they believe in him and they say, okay, if he is who he says he is and we think he is, it's worth the risk. 
They count the cost and they follow him. Andrew had already called him the Messiah. So when the Messiah gives him a clear-cut command, follow me, they leave what they're doing and they follow. We see the same thing in verses 19 and 20. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And presumably it's very early in the morning. Now he's got Peter and Andrew walking along with him and they get down the shore a little further. And James and John are there in the boat with dad Zebedee. What a name. And they're mending the nets from the night's fishing. Maybe the nets have torn from some great haul of fish or catching on a rock or something. They're washing their stuff up, getting the rigging ready for the next day. And he says, first thing, he walks up and immediately, he doesn't say, hi, how are you? He says, follow me. Immediately he tells them to follow him. And they obeyed. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What does it mean for us today to follow Jesus like that? If Jesus really is the king of the universe, if he really did enter history as the Messiah, the one who brings God's kingdom near, how do we respond to that? The first response, if you don't know Jesus, is to repent of your sins. Your sins separate you from God, and they condemn you to hell apart from him forever. So repent of those sins, hate those sins, turn from those sins, and trust in Jesus. Trust that his death on the cross paid for your sins, and believe that he he is sufficient to pay for everything that you've ever done. Believe in him, trust in the power of his resurrection life, and the promise that he will give you that life if you really trust in him. But if you trust in him that way, then you will do this third thing. You will follow him. You will repent, believe, and follow. What does that mean and what does it not mean? To start with, it doesn't mean necessarily that he's calling you like Andrew and Peter and James and John to leave your job and go into full-time ministry. (laughs) God's given us each different roles to play in fulfilling the creation mandate, the cultural mandate to, to fill the earth and take dominion. Humans, men and women are are designed to exercise God's creational rule over the earth as his representatives. Work is part of what we've been given to do. So Jesus isn't telling them that it was wrong to be fishermen, that everybody should go be just religious vocationally. But he is saying that for them, at that time and place, he's calling them to something different something different than fishing for fish. Following Jesus does not necessarily mean quitting your day job. But one thing it might mean is quit your day job. (laughs) It might also mean being willing to suffer fractures in human relationships or upsetting family members or putting yourself in danger. We don't know. We're not told how Zebedee felt about his sons walking off the job to follow this rabbi. We don't know how Peter's wife felt that he left their source of income for three years to follow Jesus. We do know how the religious leaders felt about those who followed Jesus, and it was not good. Following Jesus will be costly. The co- what the cost is for each person is different, but the common denominator is that it is costly. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, 
Paul writes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. He doesn't give any exceptions to that statement. Luke 9, 23 to 25. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The call to repent and believe, the call to follow Jesus is a costly call. It is demanding, and it is also the most rewarding thing in the world because it means submitting yourself to reality. Because Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the ruler of the universe. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. The book of Revelation chapter 20 pictures still a coming rule and reign of Christ visibly over all the earth. Now, the, the people of Jesus' day, the, the Jews, they weren't crazy when they thought about some kind of visible kingdom coming. You read the Old Testament prophets and, and a visible rule and reign of God is <clears throat> it's something that's expected. What they had done is that they had skipped over all of the suffering servant parts, the parts that Jesus said had to come first. First the cross and then the crown, first the suffering and then the glory. They'd skipped over those parts, but their expectation in the end is not totally off base. But before we get there, before that day comes, in the in-between, we still need to take Jesus' word seriously. The kingdom is near. And it's near to the world in the presence of the church. We are the place for that, that language from Exodus 19 of, I'll make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. The apostle Peter picks that up in 1 Peter 2 and he applies it to the church. He says to believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and by extension to all Christians throughout all time, you are a chosen race, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, a people for his own possession. We are the place where the rule and reign of God are made manifest, where we make it clear to the world that Jesus is king right now, that he's worthy of being followed. And we show that. We make that kingdom visible, even though it's not fully here. It's not over all the world yet. We make it visible in this age by being willing as Christians and as churches to do whatever Jesus tells us to do. Are you willing to do whatever he says to do? Are you willing to repent of all of your sins, to quit clinging to some of them while saying, I'll let go of those ones over there? Let go of them as they come visible to you. We don't see them all at once. Praise the Lord, or we'd be overwhelmed. But as you see, as you become aware of sin, are you willing to repent of it and let it go? Are you willing to be fishers of men? To try to cast the net out and pull people towards Jesus. That's what he calls us to do. Repent of your sins. Trust Jesus. Join him on mission and submit to his authority. That is what this text is calling us to do. To do everything he tells us to do. That's what we're called to as Christians. And of ourselves, we're totally insufficient to do it. But by his spirit, we can obey. So let's ask him to help. Father God, would you help us? First of all, if there's any here who don't know you, would you open up their eyes to see their sinfulness 
and their need for a savior and to gladly then accept and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross, paying for all of our sins and trust in the hope of resurrection life for all eternity that is given to everyone who trusts in him. And Lord, would you help each of us who have trusted in you to gladly lay aside everything that we're hanging on to that slows us down from following you. Help us to see. It does look different for each life. What does What is the cost of discipleship? What are the things we need to let go of so that we can lean into serving you and following you and worshiping you with everything that we are and everything that we have? Help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.